I'm really excited to uh, launch into a new series of messages this morning based on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which just is some powerful words from Jesus that kind of direct our, our way of living. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me if you would. This is in Matthew. The entire sermon goes from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you want to review that yourself. But we're going to begin with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. So we're in the New Testament, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair, or you can use your tablet or get on the phone with your, the, the Cedar Hills app. You can use the Bible there. Um, but if you'd look that up, Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Matthew 5, 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Have you ever dreamed about winning the lottery? I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what you would purchase if you won the lottery. Go ahead and talk about that right now. Okay, good job. I noticed that on this particular question, it started kind of quiet and it's been building. So I don't know if you're like getting ideas from other people of all the things you would like to do. I got an interesting email a couple weeks ago out of the blue. I got an email from the U.S. ambassador to Liberia, which in case you don't know, Liberia is a country in Western Africa. And this letter informed me that the president of Liberia had amassed a large fortune But she was not doing well. She was uh, not expected to live much longer. And um, sadly, nobody in her family or in her administration was uh, good enough to get this inheritance. They were all corrupt. And so they've been looking for a good person to give this inheritance to. And unbeknownst to me, the president of Liberia, I guess, has had her eye on me and uh, (laughs) decided that I was worthy of this bestowment of this honor. And uh, apparently it was $177 million, and I thought... That's amazing. And uh, the letter from their email from the ambassador went on to say um, she's really not doing well at all and it would be much easier if she could make this gift to me before she passes on. So if I could hurry up and send her all of my banking information, she would be happy to put that sum right into my account. So as soon as I got this email, I'm, you know me, I get all geeked out about things. I'm excited and I'm thinking about, first of all, I wonder what I've done that she noticed that was so good. Why did she think I'm a good person? That's the first thing I thought about for a second. And then I started thinking about what I could do with $177 million. 
And I thought of all the good I could do with that, like pay off my house or maybe buy a new house or a, a new car, cars, car for Mary, a boat, a really nice pair of rollerblades, airplane, although what I'd do with an airplane, I don't know. So I got to thinking about this, and um, it realized that uh, two things. First of all, the American ambassador to Liberia did not use spell check on the email. <laughs> and then the second thing I noticed was this just seems like it's got to be too good, too good to be true. What I actually got after reading this email was some kind of virus. So my laptop locked up, and I couldn't navigate anything else on there. And I'm panicking because I'm thinking, all of my really good stuff is in this laptop, and I don't want to lose it. I'm trying to push all kinds of buttons, and I hit something wrong, or else it was working its magic, and my, the windows kept rebooting and then turning off and rebooting in this endless cycle. And I'm like starting to panic and getting very anxious about this, so I do what I know all good computer owners are supposed to do, to turn it off. So I hit the power button and turn it off, and luckily the thing shut down. And while I'm waiting for the thing to reset and everything, I'm nervous, but not so nervous that I couldn't go back to thinking about what I would do with a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know what kinds of things you guys would do with it, but I, my dreaming set off, and I've got to be honest with you that I found most of my daydreaming pretty self-centered but self-centered in kind of a Christian way, kind of in the way you'd want your pastor to be self-centered. I, I wished I could be ridiculously wealthy because then I could be ridiculously generous. And I, I wished I could travel to exotic, faraway places because then I could come back here and tell you all more interesting stories and help you enjoy that. What kind of things do you think about when you let your daydreams go? Do you think about material stuff, possessions, buying things? Do you think about being ridiculously successful or famous? Uh, do you think about maybe finding that true love or finding that relationship that's really significant? Uh, do you dream about solving some big problem in the world or, or overcoming some disease or something like that? What do you daydream about when you daydream? Because I then got to wondering about daydreams and daydreaming about that and thinking, you know what, it seems like our daydreams might reveal something about us. Like the things that we long for, dream about, might have something to say about the things that are most important to us, the things that are most valuable to us. I wondered if that's the case. And about the same time I'm going through all this daydreaming, I started reading the Sermon on the Mount. And I got this, I had this very real thinking in this moment. I'm thinking, I need a reset button for my life. That's what I need. And these words from the Sermon on the Mount start kind of functioning like that. I start rethinking what's really important and what do I value and uh, what am I aiming at in my life. What we'd like to do over the next about eight weeks, seven, eight weeks, is we'd like to dig deep into these words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to see if they have any power to reset us, to reset our lives. Because these words that we have from Jesus here are actually words that describe God's kingdom. They describe the kind of life that God wants for us. In fact, I think it would be safe to put it this way. These words on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, are, it's like God's dream for our life. And I'm wondering if we immersed ourselves into this little section of Scripture, would those words be like a reset button and reset our dreams? 
So instead of dreaming these things for ourselves, these maybe self-centered things, would we start to dream a dream that matches God's dream for us? Could we start to imagine the kind of things that He wants? So that's what we want to try to do over the course of this, uh, this little series. We want to start trying to dream God's dream. So let's start. Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount with what are probably the most famous words from the sermon and also the most challenging. These are really difficult words. We call them the Beatitudes. And I don't think you can read through the Beatitudes without having some kind of questions raised because these are such remarkable ways of looking at, God, at life. Um, the most common word I've come across in describing this section of Scripture is radical. This is like a radical way of looking at how we should live our lives. And what Beatitudes actually means is it means blessing. It means the things that God wants, this honor that God wants to bestow on us, a, a, ble- a blessing, Beatitudes. And um, I think there's a trap that starts right at the very beginning of this sermon that I, I know I have fallen into many times. This is the trap. The trap is believing that what Jesus is giving us in the introduction to this sermon are conditions that we have to meet in order for us to receive His blessing. Like this is a, a contract, like these are the terms. If you do this, then God will do this. You'll get a blessing. For example, I read something like, Blessed are the pure in heart, for, those, for they will receive the kingdom. And when I read that, I ask the question, Is my heart pure enough? Is my heart pure enough to receive God's kingdom? And I go into this analysis. Yeah, well, you know what? I think my heart could probably be more pure than it is. And maybe if I worked harder at having a little more purity in my heart, then maybe God would bestow this honor on me of His blessing. That's how I'm wired to think as soon as I start reading these verses. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I think, yeah, you know what? I really should be a better peacemaker. I really should work harder at trying to build bridges and help people get along. Blessed are the meek. Yeah, I need some help with that. I need to work on... And if I could become a meeker person, then maybe God would bestow His blessing upon me. This is the trap I get sucked into as soon as I start reading this. When I hear, blessed are those who mourn, at least I'm comforted by the fact that, well, in the times that I do find myself mourning, there's going to be comfort for that. But am I in a position where I would really like volunteer for more mourning? Would I like to have more mourning so that I could receive the blessing of God's comfort in greater measure? Is that the kind of thing I want to sign up for? And i got to be honest to you, I'd say, no way, I don't want that. Ditto with persecution. Who wants to sign up for some more of that? These are not things that I would readily want to sign up for. So maybe you don't fall into this trap, but I have heard a lot of people say things about the Beatitudes as though they are like an exhortation, not an explanation. An exhortation is like a command, like God is giving us a direct, you do this, God says, and then I will do this, rather than reading it as an actual blessing, that God is actually beginning the sermon by saying, hey, I want to bestow something on you, a blessing, here it is. Uh, We started reading this together in the staff at our staff meeting this week, and Jared brought another translation to to bear on this, the New Living Translation. I think this translation makes the, the tone of this opening paragraph much clearer. Listen to this from the New Living Translation. One day, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And Jesus gathered, and Jesus' disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. 
God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who are hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing the right thing, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. You get what he's saying here? God blesses. This is God's desire. This is what God wants. He wants, the, he wants to bestow the honor of his blessing on us. And when I start thinking about it that way, that seems better than kind of my usual way of reading this, of kind of skeptical or maybe cautiously optimistic. Like, if we happen to get our life straightened out enough, then maybe God would choose to mete out a little bit of blessing to us. And I wonder, as I'm thinking about this, if it's because I have a a distorted image of God. Sometimes I picture God as the God giving the law on the mountaintop, you know? He's there, and he's with smoke and cloud and fire and lightning, and he's making this pronouncement, this says the Lord, and you you don't even dare look at him in the face. That kind of God, well, then maybe we got to live up to that. So i got to get my life in order in order for him to dole out a little blessing to me. And if I don't, well, then I would expect that kind of God to withhold his blessing from me. That's the image that I have to wrestle with. A more common biblical image of God is the God who's sitting on the mountainside calling people to himself, gathering a crowd. And as the crowd gathers, he's the God of mercy and grace, a God of love, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in love. This is the description that we read. This is the kind of God that wants to, like, bestow blessing on people. He wants us to receive that blessing. He wants to give it to us. He wants to pour it out lavishly. And I am wondering if we see this kind of God, the God who blesses, if that doesn't start to act like a little bit of a reset button in our life. Start to think about the kinds of things that God would like to bless us with. And then if we don't start to reorient instead of just thinking about the things that I might want to improve my life, do I start to think about what is God's dream, not just for my life, but for everyone? And would I start to listen for that? God does bless those who are poor and realize their need for Him. God does bless those who mourn. God does bless those who are humble. God does bless those who hunger and thirst for justice. God does bless those who are merciful. He does bless those whose hearts are pure. He does bless those who work for peace. He does bless those who are persecuted for doing right. God blesses us when we are mocked and persecuted and people say all sorts of evil things against us because we follow him. It seems like Jesus isn't setting up the terms and conditions of the blessings. He's giving us a blessing. And that blessing falls on unexpected people in unexpected ways at unexpected times. It falls on people who are down and out and extremely vulnerable and needy and broken and sinful. It falls on people like us, doesn't it? Two big opportunities that I'm going to propose today. One is the opportunity for us to simply listen for God's dream for us. 
What is God's dream for our life? What's the kind of life that God would want for us? Can we listen for that? And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as throughout this entire series, I'd like to offer that as an opportunity for all of us, to listen carefully to God's vision of the kingdom, His vision for the ideal life. Second opportunity, then, would be reset. Can we reset our dreams according to these dreams, according to this picture that God gives us? I'm curious if anybody here has ever dreamed about more sorrow, more persecution, more humility, more poverty of spirit, more hungering and thirsting for God. Who would dream about those kinds of things? Well, Matthew seems to set us up in this passage to recognize that there is a group of people who dreams those kinds of dreams. And those ki- that group is called disciple, follower of Jesus. Matthew does this in kind of an interesting way. He sets up two audiences, really, for the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're reading through this passage carefully, you will have noticed that the, chapter 5 starts with, there's a large crowd that has gathered to see Jesus. And then Jesus goes up on the mountaintop. And my kind of usual picture for this is like Jesus is just gathering these people all out in a big crowd so he go up on the mountain so he can project and get his message out to this entire crowd. But it seems now that there's a little something different going on here. Because then it says, but then after he went up on the mountain, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach. So I was curious about what's going on there, and so I went back into chapter 4 and started reading this a little bit more carefully, and I noticed that Matthew was talking about two distinct groups. The first group that Matthew talks about is the crowd, and this crowd has come and started to gather around Jesus because he's a spectacle. He's done miracles, he's done healings, he's cast out demons, he's teaching in really profound and interesting ways, so this crowd is kind of gathering around, hey, let's go see what Jesus is doing. And the crowd is curious about this. And I'm guessing that this curiosity is because there is something to see. It's a spectacle. But there also might be a little personal leverage here because you go, hey, Jesus has done this for them. Maybe Jesus is going to do this for me. So the crowd's coming because they're curious and they think they might get something from Jesus. And I can imagine that that crowd just keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger as they press in to see what's going to happen next and hope that maybe they are the benefactors of what Jesus is going to do. The second group does something completely different. The second group is the disciples. They don't seem to be that interested in the spectacle. They don't seem to be that curious about all the stuff that's going on. They're curious about one thing. They want to get close to Jesus. They want to hear what Jesus has to say, and they want to follow him. So now I'm reading this opening verse a little bit differently. Jesus saw the crowds. I read that as kind of a little bit annoyed, and he went up on the mountain maybe to get away from them. Jesus has done this in many other passages, like the crowd comes and Jesus is like, I'm going to go off by myself. So he goes up the side of the mountain, getting away from the crowd, and the next thing that happens is the disciples come around him, and then he begins to teach. It seems to me that the Sermon on the Mount, primary audience is the disciples. It's these people who have come along. Maybe the rest of the crowd is listening in. Maybe they're hearing what Jesus has to say. But Jesus' teaching is very specific in this particular sermon. He's preaching to the disciples. Those who want to come follow him, those who want to come listen to the God's dream for people, those who want to like reset their hearts. These are the people who are listening to Jesus' dream. These are the kind of people, by the way, who are willing to do what Jesus asks them to do. We see that they often struggle with it, but in the end, they're willing to follow Jesus. That's the crowd that Jesus is talking to. 
the last affirmation I get for this is at the very end of the passage we read where Jesus says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. That's the audience. So the question for me is, which audience am I? Am I the crowd or am I a disciple? Are you the crowd or are you the disciple? Are you going to go pursue Jesus because, hey, it's a spectacle. There's some really great things He might do for me. Or I just want to learn from Jesus. I want to understand God's dream for all humanity. I want to understand God's dream for my life. And then I want to start to live out God's dream for my life. I want to reset my heart. That's what a disciple would say. Which one are you? Crowd? Disciple? I find it quite interesting, particularly at the beginning of the new year, how many things we could reset in our lives, how many things need to be addressed. And uh, because I always like to be helpful to you all, I did a little research on your behalf, a, a brief search of the kind of issues that you might have to consider resetting in your life. These issues range from health maintenance to home maintenance to car maintenance, but take a few notes. You need to eat your fruits and vegetables, but don't eat too much. Take your vitamins, exercise every day, 30 minutes of cardio, 15 minutes of strength training, and 10 minutes of stretching, plus some extended time for meditation so that you can get your body and soul kind of connected and de-stress. You also need to address your finances. Spend less, save more, invest something for a rainy day, clip coupons, Check your credit score. Meet with your financial advisor. Shred important documents. Back up your computer. Update the will. Change the oil. Rotate the tires. Test the smoke detector. Change the furnace filter every other month. Replace toothbrushes every three months. Flip your mattress every six months. Check your skin for regular, irregular moles. Stock the pantry for the coming apocalypse. And get enough sleep every night. How are you all doing? These are all things that need attention. And I haven't even got to spiritual reset yet. We haven't got to any spiritual health issues, spiritual maintenance. How do you respond to this kind of avalanche of stuff at the beginning of the year? If the research on um, resolutions is any indication, we all know we have to reset things, but we don't ever get to it. So what are we supposed to do about this? I want to suggest one thing. Get immersed in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and immerse. I don't care how. Maybe you're going to come on Sunday and you're going to hear excellent sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to maybe read through it in your Bible and pay special attention to what it's saying to you. Maybe read through it in multiple different translations. Maybe take a couple paragraphs out of each chapter and really drill down into that. It doesn't matter. Um, What if we would immerse ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount so that we start to listen to God's dream for our lives? Do you think that would reset your life? This would be my hope for us. Now, I know a lot of people do a lot of different things at the beginning of the year. One of the most fascinating ones to me is the one-word people. Is anybody here doing the one-word-a-year thing? So there's a group of people, and what they do is they decide every year they're going to try to discern one word, and that's going to be their word for the whole year. 
And they pick words like, you know, patience or boldness or courage or patience or peace, different things like that. So this word kind of guides them, and they just keep that word ever before them. I thought that might be a really helpful way for us to uh, guide our immersion or our listening as we're immersed in the Sermon on the Mount. As you're reading through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just, God, speak to me. Listen. God, what do you have to say? And maybe there's going to be one word. Maybe it will come out of a sermon. Maybe it will come out of your reading. Maybe it will come out of a conversation that you're having with somebody. One word. Maybe the word's reset. Or maybe there's some other word that you can come here. But what I would like to challenge is that no pressure to come up with it today, but over the next several weeks as we go through this immersion in the Sermon on the Mount, listen for God to speak to you and listen for that one word. Is there one thing God would say, this word could just reset your entire life. I think that God wants to do that. So in the same way that turning off the power on my laptop actually and thankfully did reset the whole thing, I think this Sermon on the Mount could reset our whole life. And that's what I want to pray about right now. So let's pray together. Father God, we come before you today and I I thank you for the truths of your word And we thank you for this beautiful sermon that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And God, I pray that you would help us to be good listeners. And God, speak to us by your Spirit right now about the different ways that we might immerse ourselves in the truth of your Word. And God, we'll listen and speak to us that word or words that would encourage us to reset. God, I want to thank you for these good people who are gathered here already today. By their coming here today, I take uh, an indication from them that they are not part of the crowd, that they are disciples and they're ready to follow you and they're ready to listen and they're ready to reset their dreams for their life so that they match with yours. So God, honor that uh, commitment that they're making and we thank you that you are a God who blesses. And I know there are some here today, God, who need a special blessing today. There are those who are very sad and they're grieving. They've mourned and they need to be comforted. I pray that your spirit would come down upon them and bring comfort. God, we know that there are those here right now who they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to do what's right. They want to bring justice. They want to be peacemakers. God, bless them. We know that there are those who are poor in spirit and they need to be encouraged. There are those who are meek. God, meet with them. Um, Bring your blessing. We pray for those who are hurting because their relationships are strained or troubled, broken. Bless them. Those who are concerned about health or the health of somebody they love, God, come very near to each one of us today as we need your blessing and give us that blessing. And God, we're going to be very careful to give you our thanks and our praise and our adoration because we know that you are the God who is rich in love and abounding in steadfast mercy and slow to anger and full of mercy. So we thank you for being that kind of God, for meeting us here in this place, in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen.